Let's pray. Lord, first of all, this morning we want to pray for Jim Goodwin and uh, pray for Kavanaugh Methodist Church. Lord, we want to just pray that the gospel is being enjoyed there. Pray for uh, Jim first this morning that he is uh, savoring truth and savoring our Lord, that he is uh, uh, being poured out and spent at home and his family with his wife and uh, family. Lord, we pray that the gospel is finding purchase there first, that the gospel is on display in the way that he treats his wife that it's a picture of the church enjoying our Lord in the way that his wife enjoys him. Lord, we pray also for the church that they are enjoying our Savior with us. And Lord, I pray that you'll guard us and guard them from a spirit, ever having a spirit of competition, that we can share an ample gospel in a uh, context where it's so appropriate. And um, Lord, we pray that they won't have room to seat everybody, people that will be drawn to the gospel. We pray right now as they gather, that pray the same thing for them that I pray for us, that we'll not just be here in body, be thinking about holidays and money and stuff and issues or whatever, that we can just gather and sit at your feet for a moment and that we can be changed and equipped and renewed and refreshed and refitted for worship and wonder and that that will spill over into Tuesday and Friday lunch and Saturday breakfast with the family. Lord, we pray that you'll guard us from ever going through the motions. I pray for every family here, every individual here, that you'll guard their hearts from being distracted this morning, that we can just totally, in a supernatural way, through the work of the Holy Spirit, engage a truth that's worth engaging. We turn this time over to you for your glory, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last couple of weeks... We've been in John 14. You can turn there, but you don't really need to. Um, Really, the lights are down low on purpose today. So if you're wondering about what's going on there, I did that. And you'll understand why here in a moment. We've been in John 14 for the last few weeks. John 14, 1. And uh, bathing in the context there, just appreciating the robust truth in that one verse. The passage reads, the context is Jesus is in his final hours going up to the cross. He's sitting with his disciples in these last few moments before they head off to Gethsemane. And he's pouring into them sort of a last testament, last words to his family, his immediate discipleship family. And he tells them, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What we've been doing these last couple of weeks is the first of the three weeks, first this being the third, we considered how not to believe. We kind of took this picture of belief and we shaded the region around it to understand what belief isn't. It's not believing in self, it's not believing in stuff, it's not believing in means. And then last week, we filled in the inside to understand what belief is. That it's a full-fledged, knees in the breeze If you were here, you know the image. Knees in the breeze, sort of reckless, abandoned. Everything that I am, I'm placing under the canopy of this person and work of Jesus Christ. And today what I want to do is really kind of a character study of someone who did that well. Someone who did the commandment. That's what it is, a commandment. doesn't sound like one. Let not your hearts be troubled. sounds like a suggestion. Hey man, it's all right. But in the original language, it's, a, it's an imperative. It's a commandment. Do not, let not your heart stay troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Today I want to look at the life of a guy that did this well. And the lights are down low because you're really not going to be able to follow me today. Um, today's going to be a little bit unusual. There have probably been five or six sermons in five or six years or five years now that have been like this in terms of the flow of it. Um, But what I want to ask you to do in these next few minutes, it's a little different. Um, What I want to ask you to do in these next few minutes, the lights are down low because I want you to tune out everything else. I want you to be checking out somebody's hairdo so the lights are hopefully low enough where you can't check out anybody's attire. I don't want you, if you can, just ask that the Holy Spirit will give you a divine attentiveness and a divine focus where you can tune out maybe money issues, 
house issues, car issues, friend issues, even marital issues. I want you to tune out all that stuff. Business issues, insert blank, anything but these next few minutes. Just Godward, tune all that stuff out. And focus and listen to this story about a man named Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. His father was named Jacob, also referred to as Israel. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. This also means a robe with long sleeves. So it may not be the technicolor dream coat that we think it was. It might just be long sleeve coat. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. Here, trouble. You're going to see lots of trouble in this story. Troubled heart. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, little bro? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words, probably for his coat. And then he had another dream not really having a good read on people. He told his brothers this dream too. He said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream, guys. Maybe you'll like me after this one. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Now go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. His brothers weren't there. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. He sees his brothers, hey dudes, maybe I got another dream for you. And they're conspiring to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, talking like pirates, arg. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness. That'll do, but don't lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his, to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors or the robe with long sleeves that he wore, and they took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty. And there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. That's cold. Sat down to munch their lunch while they conspired and planned what to do with this dude's fate. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, Here's an idea. He says, what profit is if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. So let's sell him into slavery instead. And his brother said, oh, that's a great idea, Judah. Let's do that. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, and I don't know where he was beforehand, but he wasn't with his other brothers. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? 
Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat. They're apparently not listening to Reuben. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found, Pop. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. He identified it. He said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol. That's like saying, I'm going inside the earth to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. As this story continues, just make a little mental note of who all's weeping. It's a gut-wrenching story. It's been robbed of that potentially through 4,000 years of time, through telling it in the Sunday school classes and with a smile on our face and never really taking in the drama and the pain and the suffering. But this morning, we're going to savor it. And we'll weep with him. The father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man as he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and he attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, that's an employee right there. All you got to worry about is what you're going to eat. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Probably a sultry, seductive voice. Lie with me, Joseph. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. All he's worried about is his eat, his food. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, woman, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's the first clue where Joseph is oriented while he's going through this rocky, bumpy road. Not, I can't do this great sin against Potiphar. I can't do this great sin against my God. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, she was persistent. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. But one day when he went out into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, fleeing the scene. And as soon as she saw that he'd left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out and got out of the house. See, here it is. She laid up his garment by her until her master came home. You can just see her sitting, waiting, waiting for daddy to come home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, the one you bought, he came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. All right, just make a mental note. First, there's the pit. Then there's prison. It says, but the next verse, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Remember where he is. Showed him steadfast love while he's unjustly placed prison and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison 
The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer, the king of Egypt, and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Hey, dudes, what's up? He asked the Pharaoh's officer who were with him in the master's custody, why, why are your faces downcast today, fellows? And they said to him, Dude, we've had some dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, listen where he's oriented, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. The baker did too, but let's focus on the cupbearer. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. But please, cupbearer, listen. Please remember me when it's well with you, when you're restored. Please do me the kindness to mention to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house slash pit. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of he, the Hebrews. He hadn't forgotten all that. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. It goes on, the baker ends up dying. The prophecy or the, the dream is true about the baker. The dream, dream is true about the cupbearer. The cupbearer is restored. Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years... This is the next words that Moses wrote. It's incredulous to Moses, I think. It ought to be incredulous to us. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And then the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. Pharaoh awoke. What in the world was that? He dreamed a second time, and this time it's about ears of grain. Seven little skinny ears of grain and seven fat plump ones. The seven skinny ones eat the fat plump ones, but they still stay skinny. So in the morning, his spirit's troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Oh, man, I remember my offenses today, two years later, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew boy that I had forgotten for the last two whole years was there with us a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Pharaoh said to Joseph, he said, hey, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you, you got it going on. You can understand it. You can interpret it. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, Oh, it's not in me. God will give you a favorable answer. So Joseph said to Pharaoh, he said, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. 
Now, therefore, Pharaoh, here's what you ought to do. Select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved on the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. It's important. This proposal pleased Pharaoh. He said, that's a great idea, Joey. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Joseph's probably standing there going, hey, what about me? What am I, hamburger? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand. He put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Joseph's really got it going on now. He's 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years of the earth that the earth produced abundantly, he gathered up the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. He did just like he said. And before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Joseph called the name of the firstborn son Manasseh. And here's what Manasseh means. For he said... God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Do you hear pain in that? Any of y'all have your first kids named after your pain? God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house, the smacking lips of my brothers while they conspired against me. My worn knees as I begged for my life in the bottom of the pit. I'm going to name my first son after that pain. God's taken it away. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, fast forward into the years of the famine into Canaan. Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. This is just going to sound like a dad. Listen to a dad right here. He said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? What are you doing, boneheads? Come here, let me slap you around your face and ears. I hear there's food for sale over in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die sitting around looking at the likes of your sorry behinds. I sound like a dad, doesn't it? Now, I added a little bit of my, what maybe what I would have said. <laughs> so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, the youngest. Joseph's brother with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Benjamin will come into play later. Now, back in Egypt, Joseph is governor over the land. We're in the famine now. He was the one who sold to all the people in the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he treated them like they were strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. We're hungry. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. It came full circle. And he says to them, he says, You are spies. You have come to see, to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, No, my Lord. We're just here to get some food. Your servants had just come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. See the irony in that? I wonder what, how, how did Joseph stay silent? We're honest men, for real. Your servants have never been spies. We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Joseph's hearing this. And that, I bet he's thinking, is that all I get? I'm no more? Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. 
And he put them all together in custody for three days. I'm here in pain. I'm here to do this hurting, man. Why did he throw them in custody? He didn't even say. I'm surprised he didn't kill them. I'm hearing a very real dude, a very real dude that saw the same sunsets that you and I see with the same sun, a very real dude that walked on dirt just like we walk on, a very real dude that bruises and was beat up when he hit the bottom of that pit just like we would have been. A very real dude is hurting. He puts him in jail. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest, men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Talking about Benjamin. Joseph's saying, I want to see Ben. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another in his presence, they're speaking the Hebrew or Canaanite language, whatever that would have been, to each other thinking that he didn't understand it. Because he's an Egyptian, they think. He's probably all painted up, look like King Tut. And they're just looking like Canaanites. So they're talking to each other. Here's what he said. In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. You remember the one that was no more? In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. He begged them. And we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Reuben the know-it-all. Remember the one that tried to save him in the first place? Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They didn't know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So they head on back to Canaan. The rest of the brothers, when they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, that mean Egyptian dude, and he took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father, and one is no more dead. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men. And Jacob says to them, He says, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and now Simeon is no more. They write Simeon off. Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow into Sheol, into the depths of the earth. Now, fast forward, they've eaten all the grain. Simeon's still languishing over there in Egypt. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, Dad, you remember what he told us? He solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. Remember Ben, little Ben over there? And Israel said, Man, why did you guys treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your little brother down here? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Dad, we're going to die of starvation if we don't go do this. I will be a pledge of safety for little Ben. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever, Dad. If we had not delayed, we would, we would now have returned twice, sitting around talking about it. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag. That must not have been much. 
Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man. A little balm. A little honey. Some gum. Wrigley spearmint. Myrrh. Put some pistachios in there and some almonds. Pistachios and almonds will always win a man's heart. Take double the money with you. Take also your brother. Go ahead. Arise. Go again to the man. And may God Almighty, El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother, Simeon and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. So the man went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The men are afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It's because this whole scenario I didn't even read about where he put extra money in there and he put their money back in their bags and they went home and there's the food and the money. And they're thinking, oh, we were supposed to have paid for this food. It's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that he brought us in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us his servants and seize our donkeys. They like their donkeys. So the man, the servant, brought the men into Joseph's house and and gave them water and he washed their feet And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present, the pistachio, the Wrigley's, the uh, almonds. Okay, let's make sure to take all the crumbs out of there, everything we nibbled on on the way. We want this to look good for that Egyptian dude because, boy, he sure is moody. They prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. They think they're going to die. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. Your pain? And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Then he washed his face, and he came out, and controlling himself, he gets his composure back together. He said, serve the food. So they ate, and they drank, and were merry with him. And then he tests them to see if they've learned anything. He sends them on their way, But when he did that, he planted a silver cup in one of their bags, in Benjamin's luggage, to be specific. He finds out it's missing. Of course, he planted it on them. He knows it's missing. He calls them back to see if they're going to diss Ben just like they dissed him. And Judah says these words to him. He says, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you're like Pharaoh himself. Please let your servant remain, me, Judah. Take me instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. They probably put him in the grave. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. Speaking of all the Egyptians, all his servants, send him away. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? You just been saying that? But his brothers could not answer him for their dismay at his presence. They thought this was like King Tut guy. This is little brother tattletale, dreamer, thrown into the pit, begging for his little life, Joseph. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near me, please. And they came near and said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For, listen, where he's oriented, God sent me before you to preserve life. 
God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, Daddy. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. This will sound a little bit like the promised land. Like a little miniature pre-promised land called Goshen. You must tell my father of all the honor in Egypt and all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. The report was heard in Pharaoh's house. that Joseph's brothers had come and it pleased Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, those were your brothers you've been messing with all this time? Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. And this is a little message, a little tiny message for the church. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. And then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, here's another little message for the church. He said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Joseph's heart became numb, for he didn't believe him. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he'd said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. He said, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Saddle him up. Giddy up. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. He's on the way to Egypt. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions that night and said, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob must have been troubled. Man, I'm bailing on the promised land that was promised to my granddaddy, Abraham. God spoke to him and said, Jacob, Jacob, here am I. Or Jacob said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. You're not bailing on me. This has all been my plan. I've been seated on the throne this entire time through every little detail. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And listen to what he says. I will also bring you up again. I'm going to bring you back. And Joseph's hand, listen to the tenderness of our God. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob. So Jacob set out from Beersheba, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him into Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot, giddy up, I'm going to go see my daddy. And he went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a good while. You hear the pain? And Israel said to Joseph, the same words that Simeon said when he held the Christ child. He said, now let me die, since I have seen your face. He says, I know that you are still alive. So Jacob's family moves into Goshen. They settle down. Jacob is advanced in years. He's about to die. He calls all his sons together. He blesses them. There's a sweet blessing for Judah. If you read this story again and look at Judah, keep your eye on the football that is Judah. Watch what he did. That's the line that Jesus came through. But he passes out the blessings to all his sons. 
And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed. Just perfect timing. Like his last words. I don't know how they time it that way. Draws his feet back up into his bed and he breathes his last and he was gathered to his people. And then Joseph fell on his father's face and he wept over him and he kissed him. Pharaoh found out that he passed away and Pharaoh says, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Jacob made him swear he'd bury him back home. So Joseph went up to bury, bury his father. When the inhabitants of the land, it was such a dramatic event burying their father when all the neighbors saw what happened there, when all the people in Cana that were still there saw this group of people burying this man, they ended up calling this the meadow or the morning meadow of Egypt. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, uh-oh. Just his life has been what's preserved us, probably. Out of honor to our daddy. That's probably why Joseph hadn't killed us. They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a messenger to, to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. This is what he said, Joseph. He said, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Listen to these last sentences of the book of Genesis. Joseph said to them, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's what he's saying when you don't forgive somebody else, is you're putting yourself in God's place. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you who smacked while I begged, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, boys. I will provide for you and your little ones. You think you sent me here? God sent me here. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There are two things that I want you to get from this story. Two important things that's going to help you believe it. The first one is God's providence. You've just seen it. You may not know it yet, but I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to tease it out. I'll define it in a moment, but I want you to see it in motion. Here's what God's providence looks like. God was on his throne when Joseph dreamed as a young boy. God was on his throne when he stuck his arms in the sleeves, maybe long sleeves or colorful sleeves. We don't know which of his fancy coat. God was alert and attentive and on his throne when Joseph sat and enjoyed the company of his father. God was on his throne when Joseph tattled on his brothers and was then hated by him when he told them about his dreams. God was on his throne when Joseph felt the abrupt contact with the bottom of a pit in Dothan and he listened to his brothers discuss his fate while they smacked their lunch. God was on his throne while Joseph begged for his life. God was on his throne as the wagon that carried him pulled away from the only land he'd ever known toward an unknown, unknown land called Egypt. God was on his throne as Potiphar bid for a new slave at the slave market, a little young boy named, Hebrew boy named Joseph. God was on his throne and Joseph served in Potiphar's house and was promoted and favored. God was on his throne and was alert and aware and attentive when Joseph was unfairly accused of making a play on Potiphar's wife. He wasn't snoozing. Joseph's God was on his throne when Joseph felt the cold, damp air of a jail cell. And then when he interpreted the cupbearer's dream and then when he languished for two whole Years. God wasn't napping. The same God was on his throne when after all these trials, Joseph was promoted to the Pharaoh's right hand and given control over the granaries. 
This sovereign, wonderful God was then on his throne wonderfully when what seems like chance and circumstance and maybe luck, that his brother stood before him. God was on his throne. There's no such thing as chance. Joseph's story shows us that life is not a series of accidents. Whatever your circumstances are not a series of accidents. My dad just told me this last week, a guy that's kind of been a surrogate granddaddy for me. He's aging now, but his granddaddy's long, or his father's long passed away. He asked his father one day when he was a little boy, he said, Daddy, what, what's life all about? And his daddy replied, you know, just envision this little conversation happening maybe on the back of a, a Model T in central Louisiana. He said, son, it's just one dang thing after another. <laughs> What's life all about? It's just one dang thing after another. Man, while that's cute, that's not true. Life isn't a series of accidents. It's a series of appointments. And some of those appointments are delightful. And you cheer and you sing and you say, God blessed me. And some of them are heartbreaking and painful. But God was still awake and on his throne. He's a sovereign, providential God. And he's seated and aware. Providence is this. It's the governing of all creation at all times and all things to their appointed end. And the appointed end is going to be his will. I'm going to say it again. It's the governing of all creation at all times, in all things, to their appointed end. In the case of Joseph, this bumpy road was God's will and way to preserve a people. In fact, to create a people through the furnace of affliction. So there are no meaningless moments or unimportant circumstances. There's no such thing as bad luck or mere chance. All things are working together toward an end result. A God-ordained, a God-sovereign result. Joseph seemed to understand this. Throughout this whole story, where is he oriented? Godward. Man, God sent me here. God did this. God interprets these dreams. God has numbed me to the pain of what my family did to me in my former land. He has a consistent confidence that God is at the helm. That's providence. What we see at work in his life is what Jesus said in John 5, 17. He said, my father's working until now, and I'm working. God's always at work. I guess he took one day off, but he's been at work ever since. He's not snoozing. What we see at work in Joseph's life is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 11. He said, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things. All things. All means all. A pit, a prison, smacking brothers, begging for your life, a lion misses. All. What we see at work in Joseph's life is what, we see, what Paul refers to in Acts 17. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. Every single thing we do or say. God is on his throne, and he's alert, and he's aware. Jesus spoke about this in the book of Luke. I'll read it to you quickly because I'm already there. Luke chapter 12, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So not a sparrow falls from a, a tree or a hair falls from your grape, from your head, your melon, that God doesn't know about it and will it and ordain it. God providentially and proactively and intentionally guides Joseph through difficult and dark moments and a troubled heart moments to an end that's beyond him, one that's greater than him. There's more at stake than Joseph's little comfort. This is the same God of John 14, 1 that's woven together the dark hours of the cross for his own ends. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. 
It says, this Jesus, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God wasn't snoozing on Friday 2,000 years ago. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He's the same God that's seating on the throne in your dark hour. The same God that's seating on the throne while you wrestle with your troubled hearts. He's not snoozing or unaware. Understanding God's providence will help you obey His command to let not your hearts be troubled, but believe God would. Because you know He's there and awake and attentive and in control. This leads to the second thing that I want you to understand this morning is God's concurrence. First was providence. The second thing is concurrence. Remember what Joseph said at the end of the story? He's talking to his brothers. They're thinking he's going to kill him. And he says, you brothers, you intended evil. Here, premeditation. He wasn't like, oops, fall into a pit. Like, we're going to conspire wickedness against you. You guys intended evil, but God intended good. While you guys premeditated evil, God premeditated good through the same events. It wasn't like the bad guys did one thing and then God did a totally different separate thing. God took the bad thing and made it a good thing. That's concurrence. Through vastly different intentions that run in parallel to one good God-ordained end. So what you need to understand about even the most wicked evil that it's embedded within an aware and proactive and working and premeditating God. And all the while, God never authors sin. But He makes it good. The Puritans used to have a saying, John Flabel specifically, he wrote a book on providence. And he said, providence is like the Hebrew language, it must be read backwards. And some of your circumstances, you might be in it saying, you're trying to read Hebrew forwards. You can't do that. But when you get beyond it and you look back and you understand how he was at work. And you understand how God could do a good thing while man could do a bad thing. Joseph says to these guys, you smacking brothers, you intended one thing while God intended something else, something better at the same time. It's right there in Acts 2.23. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. By the hands of wicked men, you killed while God intended something good. Wicked hands worked while an invisible, mighty, and good hand worked. And oh, by the way, he's always at work, remember? At the hands of wicked men, God ordained and willed that hope would come to all mankind, that man could once and for all be reconciled with his creator by the work of another. And this greatest glory and good came through the darkest and most gruesome hour and the worst injustice this world has ever known. Only my God could do that. Listen to an Irish preacher preach on providence he said only i don't know i can't even mimic the accent he said only god could turn a good friday into easter this whole thing if you get this this adds real meaning to romans 8 28 all things work together for good to those who love him and you go all things you go, oh yeah all things all things do work together for good the dream, the coat, the pit, a lying missus, the prison, a forgetful cupbearer, a famine in Canaan, a grieving daddy. All things means all things. So in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe God. He's saying, disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. All things work together for good for those who love me. The dark heart of Judas. I know you're troubled over him leaving the table a minute ago. It all works together. The dark heart of Judas, the betrayal, the arrest, the trials, crowds that a few hours from now will shout, Give us Barabbas! The same mouths that a week earlier said, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Saying, Give us Barabbas. It's all working together. 
The beating, the crown of thorns, the nails, the spear, the suffering, the death, the burial, all things. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Only my God could do that. Take this gruesome hour, the wounding, the crushing, the stripes, and turn it into peace and healing for the likes of you and me. What an awesome God. A guy named John Gerstner was a theologian that died in 1996. He was one of R.C. Sproul's teachers. If you have read R.C. Sproul, you might probably a DNA connection there. He's speaking on moral outcomes. He, descri- he describes four categories to an event. So take the worst tragedy that you ever experienced or the things that you're going through right now or the things that you know of a friend and just kind of look at them now through the lens of these four outcomes. Four outcomes. First is a bad, bad. That's what Satan does. It's just plain bad. When God doesn't touch it, which he touches everything, but just left to itself, that's a bad, bad. A good, good is what God alone does. That's two categories. The third category is a bad good. A bad good is when a self-righteous man does a good thing, but he does it with all the wrong motives, so he robs it of its impact. Instead of being a faithful event, it's a sinful event. That's a bad good. And the last category speaks so wonderfully to this. It's called a good bad. A good, bad. This is the rich reality of a sovereign, providential God where you can recategorize whatever you were thinking about a minute ago or whatever you will experience someday if you remember this and go, in the hands of my God, all things work together for good so I can re-qualify this and recount this as a good, bad. That's the only way you can count things all joy. To count it all joy doesn't mean that it's joy because you walk into it, you go, man, this, this is not joy. This is horrible. But you say, I'm going to do a recount. The world's going to count it one, two, three, four, five, but God's people are going to count it joy, 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 joy because my God is providential. He's not snoozing because my God is working all the time after the kind intention of His will because my God is on His throne and my God is a concurrent sort of God. It's taken wickedness and heartbreak and tragedy and mourning and loss and turning those into glory moments. While wicked hands work, the invisible hand of a holy God, a holy good God, works. He's always working. I'll leave you with a quote. It's a guy named William Cooper. This guy was a hymnist in the 1700s. Spelt Cowper, if you ever see his name written. C-O-W-P-E-R. William Cooper. This is in a hymn. It says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. You're in the middle of a pit or a prison or an injustice or some heartbreak or some troubled heart, one thing or another. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence... He hides a smiling face. What an awesome God. Knowing these things about our God will help you believe when you have a troubled heart. I'm going to pray. God, what an incredible, incredible God you are. We're so thankful that you take heartbreak, or loss, our pain, our suffering, our injustice, our sickness, even death. And you use all, the, all those things toward your end of glory. Lord, I pray that this people this morning got a little glimpse of that. 
And I pray that whatever our little things that we have in our lives that we've been qualifying as bad, that we can recategorize them as a good bad, knowing that you are on your throne, that all things work together for good, that those who love you. Thank you for being so sovereign. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.